You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us today for AOA. We've got a lot coming on today's program. We're going to speak here in just a moment with Secret Johanna. She's the director of the Public Lands Council about some concerning rules being promulgated by the Biden administration. And then in segment two, we're going to dive into this cattle market. If you take a look at the commodity trade today, grains are down big corn off 11 to 26 cents. Soybeans down 39 to 20 cents. But we're seeing this weakness in the grain market pull feeder cattle higher. Shaylee Stewart will join us in segment two with an update on what's happening in the cattle trade. And then in segment three, we're going to talk with Chris Bliley from Growth Energy. We did get that three-year RFS proposal last week, had some disappointing news for conventional and sustainable aviation fuel producers. And we'll talk about that with Chris. Before we dive into all of that, however, let's get an update on what's happening here quite literally on the ground across the United States with Sigrid Johannes. She's the director of the Public Lands Council. And Sigrid, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. We wanted to have you on today because there has been some recent announcements around the Endangered Species Act. Sigrid, we've seen some Trump-era rules go out the window, and we got some new Biden administration rules on the ESA. Can you fill us in on what they're proposing? Absolutely. So these are three key rules that impact how species are, are listed under the Endangered Species Act as either threatened or endangered, and how those accompanying habitat designations play out on the ground. And that second piece is what we're especially concerned about here. One of the rules proposes changes to Section 4, which deals with critical habitat designation. And some of the really harmful provisions in there are things like no longer requiring the federal agencies to look at economic impact when they're analyzing whether or not to designate habitat. Uh, no longer requiring that critical habitat be designated in so-called occupied territory. In other words, you know, you could do a critical habitat designation now in an area where the species doesn't currently live and may not live any time in the near future. Um, and so there's a lot of aspects of that one that are pretty concerning and significantly widen the amount of territory that could potentially be designated as habitat for a species. Some of the other changes uh, deal with the 4D rule, and then there's also a lot of changes to some of the interagency consultation, which is also concerning to us. I'd like to talk about that habitat designation in a little more detail. For those of us who are outside the realm of the Endangered Species Act day to day, when we get the federal government designating areas as habitat, what does that mean on the ground? What's the impact for folks who live in that area that is now declared a habitat for an endangered species? Absolutely. So that can vary from species to species. In some cases, you might have additional um, restrictions or requirements put on the way that you manage that land. Um, things like optimizing for a certain type of, you know, plant or forage profile. Um, and in other cases, you know, it can impact how folks are grazing cattle. And that's where we're really zeroed in on and concerned about. Under a threatened listing, usually what we would do is hope for a 4D rule, which allows for some flexibility in the case of incidental take. In other words, harm to the species that just comes about by accident while you're running your operation. But if it's listed as endangered, then, you know, there is no 4D rule. There is no sort of interim place. You go straight to those penalties and straight to that liability for having um, for having harmed a listed species. So the changes to habitat designations, the changes that this administration is proposing to what we call a blanket 4D rule, which really does away with that distinction um, between incidental take for a threatened versus an endangered species. It makes all of the penalties or rather the threshold of liability uh, uh, higher. Um, that's that's a combination that leads to a lot of folks potentially facing restrictions on how they run their farm or ranch. So those are two huge concerns. And then, of course, as I understand it, there are some concerns about what now it could take to get a species off the endangered species list. Uh, see, I know uh, Senator Loomis, the Republican of Wyoming, said that these new rules would make it nearly impossible to remove a species. Is that how you're reading them as well? 
Unfortunately, I think that's absolutely right. You know, this this proposed rule, again, there's three of them, so it's we got to keep them straight here and, and know which one we're talking about. But one of them, which addresses uh, Section 7, does change the language, or excuse me, Section 4, does address the language that um, describes the thresholds and sort of steps that need to be met to delist a species. And it weakens that language so that meeting recovery goals in a timely manner is, is really no longer enough under this rule to be delisted. That kind of throws into question the entire point of listing a species if you're not going to be able to meet certain goals and then say that you know it's recovered and we're removing it from the list and we appreciate uh, Senator Lummis's leadership on this but you know we do expect other folks in Congress to to point this out as well and be pretty concerned because it really is a slap in the face to folks who are doing a lot of voluntary conservation work with the goal in mind that eventually they're going to be able to delist a threatened species. All right. See, so these rules have just been proposed by the uh, gosh, they've just been proposed. So what is the next step? What's the timeline look like for these rules going from the proposal stage to eventually, I'd assume, a final uh, a final issue? Yeah, so we're now in the comment period. It's a 60-day comment period that closes on August 21st. So NCBA, as well as a lot of our other partners in agriculture, will be submitting comments on this. Um, if you want to find out more about that, I would encourage you to go to ncba.org or the publiclandscouncil.org. PLC will also be submitting comments on these. Uh, but we've got 60 days now to you know make our, our concerns heard to this administration, and there's certainly no shortage of concerns there. There's not. And folks, the habitat designation expansion is huge. Uh, do you have a sense, Sig, of just how much of the country could be covered by these new rules eventually? Um, there's really no limit on that, Mike. I mean, this this is truly scary because when you look at some of the precedent we've had in the past one to two years of this administration, species like the northern long-eared bat um, that cover you know upwards of 30 different states in the lower 48. But think about something like the monarch butterfly. You know, I think some of these pollinator species, all of those birds, bees, things that fly, um, we tend to overlook in the cattle industry, and those are the ones that are really going to really going to kill us because if you look at something like the monarch, that's a an entire lower 48 uh, states scenario. Wow. Could see huge impact, folks. Be aware of these rules. Get on there. Make those comments. See, while we've got you here, the other topic of conversation recently from a public lands perspective has been the idea of conservation leases from the BLM. Is that still with us? Are they still trying to lease ground out strictly for conservation? They are still pushing forward that rule. That's correct. We did achieve a 15-day extension to that comment period, so it's now open until July 5th. But when you look at the heavy, heavy, uh, you know, implications that this rule would have, the massive scope of it, and the fact that you know many, many industries, including grazing, asked for a 105-day extension and we got 15, I think that kind of shows where the BLM's mindset is at in terms of getting public input. We've been going to a lot of meetings across the West in the past couple of weeks. A lot of state associations associations are holding their their annual meetings and this is the number one topic in the west right now people are concerned people are upset with how this process went and they want more information and and they're submitting comments they're making their voices heard about how they don't want to see conservation altered and and elevated really as a use under flipma which is something that the blm doesn't have the authority to do see do you have a place for folks to make those comments here before that july 5th closing Absolutely. Visit publiclandscouncil.org and go to producer resources. You'll see a link there to all of our active comment periods, and you can click there to, to send your thoughts into the BLM. Get those thoughts in, folks. These federal pronouncements can have an impact on your bottom line. We've been talking today with Sigurd Johannes. She's the director of the Public Lands Council. And Sig, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Stick around, ladies and gentlemen. We'll dive into the economics of the beef trade with Shaylee Stewart of DTN here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. 
This is Jesse Allen, Farmer Ranch Director for the American Ag Network. Listeners know they can depend on their favorite radio station for the latest news, weather, markets, community events, and more. In fact, AM radio is the backbone of America with 80 million people tuning in each month to listen. And in an emergency, radio is there to help keep you safe in dangerous situations. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com and tell us why, and you will have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. Put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, it's a story that rings true. We learn to endure the heat in silence. We apply what we learn to life, the bills, the job, the family, things we're expected to handle with ease. When life heats up around us, we just try to stay afloat. We let the water boil. Reaching out isn't easy, but you've never been interested in easy. You join because you are not afraid of hard work. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait until the water boils. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and if you've been watching the commodity markets this morning, you've noticed that the grains are on a bit of a sell-off. We've got Chicago wheat down nearly 30 cents, soybeans down 23 to 32 here in new crop, and corn, old crop off 24, new crop off 24 as well. Big, big red on the screen there in grains. Different story when we take a look at livestock. Feeder cattle buyers like to see that cheaper corn feeders are up 2 plus dollars live cattle up not quite a dollar here today the enthusiasm is back in the cattle market joining us today to discuss it is shaley stewart she serves as D the livestock analyst at dtn and shaley thank you so much for joining us today the pleasure is all mine good morning mike and it is a fun time to be talking about the cattle market it is indeed. Shaley, we are still up in record territory, if not at record values quite anymore. But on Friday, we had the cattle on feed report come out from USDA. How much did that change market sentiment here coming into uh, this week? You know, Mike, I was really, I, I was fearful about how the latest cattle on feed report was going to affect the market because so often the cattle on feed report has been viewed as simply um, looking at how analyst estimates range and vary from what the actual USDA numbers are. And so if there's any discrepancy in the two, it typically affects the cattle market negatively. And so on Friday, you know, the report came out mostly as analysts forecasted. However, there was an increase in feeder cattle placements compared to what analysts predicted. Analysts thought that the estimates would be close to about 102 points 102% of a year ago when actually they came in at 105%. And so in most cases, in most scenarios, that would negatively affect the market. But I was very thankful to see throughout Monday's trade that both traders and cattlemen alike 
took the cattle on feed report, used it as a tool in which it is, but then also relied on the market fundamentals to say, you know what, even though we like the cattle on feed report and we, we find merit in its value and its details, we also know that the fundamentals of this cattle market, of this bull rally, are something to be reckoned with as well. And so just because the cattle on feed report showed us that placements are higher, that doesn't necessarily mean that the that the prices in which the live cattle and feeder cattle market are, are trading need to be lower. And so actually the market held its own and I was quite surprised. It has been surprising to see when I saw that 105% placement number print on Friday, I thought, oh gosh, it's going to be an ugly week this next week. But <laughs> Shaley, you, you're right. The fundamentals are driving the tightness. And I'm curious, when you as somebody who watches this industry so closely sees a number like that, a much bigger than expected number on placements, where do you think these calves are coming from? Are they being pulled ahead, would have been placed wow. in feedlots later this summer? You know, I think that does play a big role in today's market simply because, I mean, producers had to look at the market and the prices in which it was garnishing and say, do I want to pull the trigger and sell my calves or sell my feeders right now and take the prices or do I want to gamble on the weather? Do I want to gamble on the market in the weeks and months to come? And I think a lot of individuals just said, you know what, these prices are good enough. Load up the trailers, send them to town. That's what we're doing. And so that was one scenario. But then we also have to realize that net imports of feeder cattle from Mexico and Canada are up 31% compared to a year ago. And, you know, speaking back to our other point, sale barn receipts um, compared to May of last year were up 29% for the month of May. So not only are we seeing more imports of feeder cattle, but yes, you are right in your point to speaking that individuals just took the opportunity of the strong bullish market and sold calves sometime, somewhat earlier than what they typically would have in years past. Shaley, I'm really glad you brought up auction barns because on this program, we have been talking a lot about what we're seeing on the futures market. And in feeder cattle, it is certainly exciting to watch $240 feeders. Whoa, rare to see. But it pales in comparison to what's been happening out in the countryside. I know you've had the chance to get to some cattle sales. How much stronger have bids been out in, in the sales at the, uh, at the livestock barns? They, they've been astronomically strong. And so it's been really fun to watch these sales see where the prices are at and see see really what the market is telling us in regards to what feeder cattle prices are today and what they could be forecasted for, you know, this fall, this upcoming fall run. And so regardless if you watched, you know, Superior's Big Corn Belt Classic two, two three weeks ago or you watched Northern's Big uh, Summertime Video Auction just last week, you were blown away by how strong feeder cattle prices were. You know, a lot of those six-weight steer calves were, you know, were anywhere from that $2.50 per pound to $2.80 per pound. And, I mean, those are pretty snappy prices. They're, they're significantly higher than what they were a year ago, and uh, it's really encouraging to producers. Now, the one thing that I do caution individuals about in these bull markets is that profitability is not uh, promised through higher prices. And so we still need to be conscientious about how we're spending these dollars because all, all, in, uh, all inputs are higher this year as well. All inputs are higher. We're watching that consumer demand, Shaley, when it comes to the beef perspective. I understand cold storage report continues to show uh, show tightness in supplies. Are you optimistic that live cattle can maintain these values at least as we get a little deeper into the summer? Absolutely. I'm very optimistic simply because the demand outlook for the second half of the year is phenomenal. Whether you're looking at international demand or domestic demand here in the United States, we have seen time and time again, and I think that largely when we look back, you know, when, when years progress and we look back in history to what the 2023-2024 bull run was, is we're going to tip our hats and say thank you U.S. consumers, thank you international consumers, and thank you for supporting our markets. And, and we really have to understand that so much of the market success right now is because of number one, tight supplies, and number two, strong demand. And I don't foresee that changing in the near future. All right. So that is why we're in this current bull run, Shaley. But of course, all bull runs eventually come to an end. And we're watching for the bottom of, bottoming of that cattle cycle to see when this one possibly could. Are you hearing about herd rebuilding out there in the countryside? You know, Mike, there are two things that are directly tied to when the U.S. cow herd will rebuild, and that is green grass and profitability. And though we are, you know, seeing a better drought scenario through, throughout the nation, I know that there are pockets of still severe drought, but as a nation, as a whole, we're seeing better moisture accumulation and, and more green grass. Um, we haven't seen enough to the point in which producers are comfortable retaining females yet. And then the second part of that equation is obviously the profitability side. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, higher prices do not promise nor garnish nor guarantee profitability. And so I do not believe our build back will be as aggressive or as fast 
as what it was in 2014 and 2015 simply because of that. Producers are going to be cautious. Like I said, in, uh, in, uh, excuse me, inputs are all higher, and we also have interest rates that are significantly higher than what they were at the last rebuild. And so I think a lot of folks are going to take their time and be conscientious and make sure that they're able to do so in a sustaining manner instead of, you know, necessarily diving into these $3,000 heifers if the market uh, takes it there and, and just saying, you know what, the higher prices will, will work itself out and allow me to continue to operate. You know, Shaley, you mentioned $3,000 heifers, and I remember sitting in a sale barn in Iowa in 2014 and watching $3,200 change hands for a, a pen of heifers. Do we have anything like that sort of strength in the breeding stock market quite yet? You know, it's a little early still. I do foresee that, you know, maybe by late this fall, we could we could see at the upper end of three, obviously, for those reputation, you know, premium genetics, those type of herds, those type of packages. But so much is going to depend on what our feed situation is at that point. And, you know, it's really too early to say what, you know, hay prices are going to be specifically, what the corn crop is going to amount to. And so I, I don't want to put the cart before the horse or, you know, say what prices are going to be before the cattle sell. But I do believe that we'll be able to see some of those $3,000 Sales, but I'm not sure that the market as a whole will be there. It could be if our if our feed situation is good, but that's yet to be known. It is lots of uncertainty before we get to that say uh, phase of the cattle cycle. Shaley, you mentioned your your outlook for demand in the fourth, third, and fourth quarter 2023 are very very strong. And I'm curious what what gives you so much confidence in demand here? Just the pace of the consumers' willingness to spend so far. Absolutely. And then the other fact is that is that pork prices are high and so are uh, chicken prices. And so I'm very, you know, just optimistic that, you know, as consumers go to the meat counter, they're going to look at across the meats, they're going to look across their different options, and they're going to continue to probably look and see some value in beef, not because there's necessarily value in it, because beef prices are extremely high at the retail counter. And, you know, as a producer and as an analyst, you know, sometimes I do scratch my head and say, what's the tipping point? What's the threshold? What's the price point in which consumers are going to say, you know what, my dollar just doesn't go as far as it as it used to. I need to, you know, al allocate dollars to go further and I just can't give beef that much money. And we've yet to see that, Mike. And so I'm very excited to say that our consumers simply want and demand beef. And I think that that's really a trend that is going to continue. And, um, you know, with uh, Prop 12 coming into flux later this year in December uh, 3rd of 2023, that's going to affect pork prices. And it's, it's just a choppy ride. And I think that consumers really value what beef can do to their, to their dinner tables and how it feeds and nutrishes their families. And so I do believe that trend will continue. Shaley, that is a great point about the impact of pork prices in California. Once Prop 12 hits, my goodness, they could go to the moon, making beef look a little bit more competitive. Folks, we've been talking with Shaley Stewart. She is the uh, livestock analyst over at DTN. And Shaley, tell our audience, where can they go to read some of your writing? Oh, well, that's a, that's a great question. Thanks, Mike. They can go to DTNPF.com or they can find me on Cattle Market News on Facebook. Fantastic, folks. Check that out. Shaley Stewart, DTNPF.com. Thanks for joining us here. And folks, stay with us. Chris Bliley of Growth Energy will be joining us here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up tune in the first wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on aoa it's brought to you by our friends at the national corn growers association and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand what happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain that's what we're going to talk about each month on the Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month. And you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, it appears to be a risk-off day in the grains and oil seeds here on this Tuesday as traders seemingly ignoring the drop in crop condition ratings and looking at more rain in the forecast, the potential for more rain in the forecast, and that is giving traders a reason to take profit here, and it's continuing to accelerate to the downside as we work through this Tuesday with grains, corn, beans, and wheat all really anywhere from about 25 to 30-some cents lower here as we work through our Tuesday. Tuesday trade action. Looking at that weather forecast here, the GFS and the Euro both showing Iowa and Illinois wetter here as we head towards the weekend with some potentially good rains coming south of Interstate 80 in parts of southern Iowa into parts of Missouri even and then into parts of Illinois. Illinois' crop really struggling here, both corn and soybean wise with another double digit drop in conditions here on this week's crop progress report. But again, Again, traders are looking at that weather forecast and hoping that it will finally verify. That's going to be the big question we're going to have to watch here as the market right now confident enough to support the broad sell-off. Also coming up at the end of the week, we have USDA's uh, quarterly grain stocks and acreage numbers. That will be a big influence as we wrap up the quarter and the month of June as well. Livestock trade is relatively mixed with the cattle trade higher. Feeders especially up sharply, uh, triple digits higher here with the break in corn price on this Tuesday. Live cattle following suit with some triple-digit gains now in the front month contracts. Hogs, a little bit of liquidation there, pulling back a bit uh, with some triple-digit losses now forming in the hog trade as well. Crude oil down about 1% at 68.54. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're going to turn the focus to biofuels. Last Wednesday, the EPA released their much-awaited RVO expectations, renewable volume expectations for 2023, 2024, and 2025. These RVOs happened because of a suit by Growth Energy and a consent degree. Finally, it worked. Joining us now to get the details is Chris Bliley. He's a senior vice president for regulatory affairs there at Growth Energy. And Chris, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, glad to join you, Mike. Always get get, get the chance to catch up. Absolutely. And this is something worth catching up on. We've been talking about this proposal for some time. Chris, before we dive into the numbers, why was the RFS set watched so closely by folks in the biofuels business? Well, this was the first time that EPA was setting volumes, hence the name the RFS set, outside of the original law that went into place. So this is the first time that EPA is using factors to determine the numbers going forward rather than adjusting from the numbers that were actually written into law. So people were following it very closely because these are strong signals about how EPA and the administration are really treating the RFS moving forward into the future. Okay, and so then in December, we had the proposed volume obligations from EPA. And Chris, there was a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion in the biofuels industry. And then last week, we got the final numbers. How did conventional uh, ethanol fare in these uh, in these final numbers? Well, unfortunately, I mean, 
you know, the RFS has been a tremendous policy for decarbonization, for renewable energy, uh, and for renewable fuels. And unfortunately, what we saw in the conventional biofuel space is that EPA decided to lower what had been established volumes for or had been proposed volumes for fifth for 2024 and 2025 of 15.25 billion gallons. Now they stayed at 15 billion gallons, but we're really disappointed in that decision to backslide from 15 and and a quarter billion gallons. You know, I, you know, we really should be expanding market opportunities for higher ethanol blends like E15 and really not leaving these important carbon reductions on the table. And so that's why that was really sort of our initial reaction to those numbers. Chris, another question I have for you. Since this is the EPA's set, are they no longer constrained by the statutory limit of 15 billion gallons of conventional ethanol? Now they could raise the ceiling if they chose? Uh, that's correct. Um, and you saw it in the proposal. Uh, they went to 15 and a quarter. Um, and actually, you know, there was no limit on the high side. And on the uh, alternative, they could also go below that uh, moving forward. And again, I, I think everything we have put forward all of the data, all of the benefits you get from higher blends lends itself to growing the market, not from go going backwards. And so that's why we really, you know, we're surprised that they went back down from 15 and a quarter. And so moving forward, we're going to continue to push for strong volumes. Uh, but, you know, we do have three years now um, and we are setting that 15 billion gallons. And these are the highest volumes ever in history. Um, they could have been more and they could have done more to drive carbon reductions. And that's going to be really important going forward for a variety of markets. Chris, the concerns I hear from this final proposal, uh, certainly there are some on the renewable diesel side, but on the, the ethanol side, there seem to be concerns about the drop in cellulosic biofuels and in sustainable aviation fuel. Can you put those into perspective for us? Well, a, a big piece of EPA's proposal on cellulosic biofuels were ERINs. So RINs that went into electric transportation, um, EPA did not finalize their ERIN proposal. And so they had to adjust their numbers downward in the cellulosic column on ERINs. They did provide a modest increase for cellulosic from kernel fiber. So that is an opportunity for our ethanol producers to compete in that market. And additionally, there's a, a sizable volumes in cellulosic for biogas. Um, you know, again, I think we want to continue to grow these markets. And you touched on sustainable aviation fuel and renewable diesel. Um, you know, EPA really did not provide much of an increase at all in biomass-based diesel. And so you have a number of these feedstocks, be it alcohol to jet, be it on the renewable diesel side, you know, working towards a strong sustainable aviation fuel market. And so if you don't show much increase in renewable diesel and you leave the quarter billion gallons in conventional, it sends really a, a tough signal to the market about growing these for things in the hard to decarbonize sectors like, you know, aviation fuels, like marine fuels. And so that that's where you're seeing some of the reaction from our industry. That makes sense, Chris. So it's not so much that it's going to impact production today. It limits potential production down the line, theoretically, it's, or at least that's the concern, correct? Well, certainly on sustainable aviation fuel, but I mean, it, you know, it does have a lot of impact today. I mean, on just on renewable diesel, uh, you know, they're, they're far past where EPA finalized the volumes. They surged past that just in the first half of 2023, for example. Um, and similar, you know, we as an industry, have tremendous potential to produce. Uh, you know, we have capacity around 17 billion gallons uh, on the alcohol side. And so going backwards from 15 and a quarter, you know, really was a disappointing signal. Indeed, Chris, I want to bring the focus back to the ERIN conversation because that was proposed back in December. It, I don't think I fully understand how ERINs are going to work. Does it seem like they're going to become a reality eventually? Well, I think it's it's a little early to say. I mean, EPA certainly had some concerns. They got a lot of comment on ERINs and decided not to finalize it here uh, with this proposal. Uh, certainly, a number of people have questions, including ourselves. You know, our producers have to do a, a number of things to verify and show that the fuel they're producing is generated from biomass. 
Um, and so, you know, EPA put in some safeguards in their proposal for ERINs, but I'm not sure they went as strong as strongly or as far as, as many people thought they should. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of questions about, you know, is this being double counted? Is it biogas? Is it electricity? Is it going into the transportation sector? Those are a lot of the questions that I think a number of people had about ERINs. Um, and so, you know, we're going to continue to keep a, a close eye on it. And I know EPA certainly has an interest in it. It'll just be interesting to see how they move forward, what they can do to sort of shore up many of these questions people have about ERENs. All right. We'll continue to watch what develops in that market. Chris, in the meantime, from a renewable fuel standard RVO perspective, um, are, are we kind of done talking about this issue for the next two or three years? Or is there more legal challenges to these rules coming? Well, you know, we'll have to see on the, the legal side, uh, as it was just finalized, that people will bring litigation. Um, it has usually been the case. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, while we just finalized the rule for 23, 24 and 25, you know, right after that is, is not far away. Um, and it takes EPA a while to get through these rules. And so certainly we're going to continue uh, to keep discussing with EPA and, and stakeholders about how we can continue the RFS and how that can continue to drive investments in higher ethanol blends, sustainable aviation fuels, um, really a number of things moving forward. And I think, you know, we, we continue to push on a number of issues with EPA, including access to E15 over the summer. Absolutely. At the end of the day, well, that's what all of this comes down to is giving consumers more choice at the pump, saving a little money and improving uh, the environment as well. To that end, Chris, I understand here in the last day or so, we've gotten some uh, recent announcement of additional funding for biofuel infrastructure. Can you tell us a little bit about what USDA has announced? Yeah. I, so USDA just announced yesterday, um, they announced 59 awards of $25 billion uh, for higher blend in the a higher blend infrastructure incentive program, as well as $450 million moving forward quarterly windows of $90 million each for higher blend infrastructure. Uh, you know, this is really important. We've seen the benefits of higher blends like E15. You talked about consumer cost savings, decarbonization. And so this really is an opportunity for retailers and consumers alike to see these higher blends get out into the marketplace so they can you know really experience the savings that we saw you know just last summer we saw e15 saving as much as a dollar per gallon and so you know we're grateful to secretary vilsack uh and usda for their work to get this program into place um and we will certainly work our market development team is going to work uh, tightly with retailers to try and access this so, so people can start to see more E15, E85, and higher ethanol blends in the marketplace. Chris, this $450 million, as you mentioned, do, being doled out quarterly, um, what sort of infrastructure can it be used to provide out there in the countryside? Well, it, it, it's a variety of different purposes. Uh, for higher ethanol blends, you know, it's, it's really projects up to $5 million where retailers are installing additional pump infrastructure for E15, E85, mid-level blends. Uh, so it might be an underground storage tank. It might be additional dispensers and signage. Um, it might be, you know, piping in between uh, the, the tank and the dispenser, um, a variety of things. So it's, you know, a, a large chunk for, you know, really fueling stations and convenience stores. There's also some funding for fuel distribution facilities, so terminals and depots. Um, and there's also a small provision for home heating oil as well. All right. Lots to watch as this continues to be fine-tuned. Growth Energy, of course, Chris, will be watching these issues at the federal level. Can you tell our listener where they can go to keep up with the work you're doing? Uh, they can go to growthenergy.org. Growthenergy.org. Folks, check that out. See what is happening in the world of biofuels. We've been talking today with Chris Bliley, Senior Vice President for Regulatory Affairs there at Growth Energy. And Chris, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Folks, stick around. There's a lot of news impacting the world of agriculture, and we'll dive into it here in segment four. Leave it here. More AOA coming up right after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA. 
Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and, if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track, no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Brian Cool, CEO of Progressive Agriculture Foundation, about how to keep kids safe on the farm. Brian, if you would, what is the mission of the Progressive Agriculture Foundation? The Progressive Agriculture Foundation was formed about 30 years ago, really with the focus to bringing education, training, and resources to make children's lives safer and healthier, both on the farm in their homes, but also throughout their rural communities. So Brian, if you would, what are some tips to keep kids safe on the farm? Well, first and foremost, it needs to start with us as adults. We need to be role modeling safety behaviors, those behaviors that we want our children to be practicing every time that they are not just on the farm, but also participating in the operation. Our children are going to pick up on that. They're going to see that when we ride our ATVs, we wear helmets. When we operate our tractors, we use rollover protection. We wear our seatbelts. We don't go into grain bins when machinery is running. And I farm in Northwest Wisconsin. I understand there are times when we just need to get work done, but we need to be aware that when we cut those corners, when we maybe skirt around the topics of safety practices, our children can pick up on that and feel that, well, if mom or dad or other adults in their life, if it's okay for them to do that, it's also okay for me to do that. And I think as a parent, as an adult in a farming operation, that's not what we want our children to be doing. Brian, what resources are out there to help kids stay safe? I would really look to extension educators, 4-H, FFA. This is the time of year when they start to have more and more safety training and certification opportunities throughout rural America. Folks, we've been talking with Brian Cool, CEO of the Progressive Agriculture Foundation. And Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for the opportunity, Mike. Make every day a safety day. Thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800 209 6416 800 209 
800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Taking a look around the country yesterday, USDA released their weekly crop condition and crop progress reports. These, as we talked with Darren yesterday, might not always be the most fundamental of reports, but they are typically watched by the trade. And corn condition definitely dropped this past week. Certainly expected given the widespread expanse of dry weather across the country. Nationwide corn was rated at 50% good to excellent. That's down another five points. It was at 55% this past week. Last year, corn crop was rated at 67%. But it's worth noting there is no real way to correlate year to year when we're looking at crop conditions. Each one sort of exists in a vacuum. And sometimes it is helpful, though, to watch the trends. And crop condition in corn is definitely trending downward. Soybeans, similar story, 51% good to excellent as of Sunday afternoon. That's down three percentage points from the 54% last week. Again, substantially below last year. And this is, as similar to corn, the lowest rating for the crop since 1988. Of course, drought year 1988. Will 2023 be as bad? Missouri's soybean rating lost 12 percentage points in the last week. The grip of drought has been accentuated across the middle part of this country, and it is still spreading eastward. Though, as we talked with John Baranek yesterday, certainly could see some rainfall later on this weekend. Over on the spring wheat side of the ledger, of course, concerns about that crop going in late. However, 31 percent of spring wheat has headed as of Sunday. That's six percentage points ahead of that five-year average. 50% of the spring spring wheat crop currently is rated good to excellent, down just 1% from last week as that ample subsoil moisture up in North Dakota and parts of Minnesota helps propel that crop forward. Last week in Washington, D.C. and in New York City, there was a lot of popular news discussions about the visit from India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Now, while uh, he was in town, they were able to sign a number of documents. And importantly, for agriculture, India has agreed to remove its retaliatory tariffs on U.S. apples, chickpeas, lentils, almonds and walnuts. Regular listeners of this program know we talk with Jim Baer, the president of the U.S. Apple Association, from time to time. And the loss of India as an apple market for apple growers here in the U.S. has been huge. Uh, American apples were a major export product into that country. And that door got shut on the industry following the steel and aluminum tariffs of the last presidential administration. And they've been closed ever since due to these retaliatory tariffs that India had put on. Removing these tariffs, according to Secretary Tom Vilsack, is a, quote, major win for American farmers. And even though India remains a relatively small market for farm exports at present, India spent about $1.7 billion this last fiscal year. It is anticipated that we are going to export far more U.S. products into that country in growing years. Jim Bear did have this comment from the apple growers perspective. He said, quote, U.S. apple growers can now begin the work of competing for and hopefully regaining this critical market. Apple sales to India totaled half a billion dollars a year before dropping to nearly zero as a result of this trade dispute. We'll see. We'll get in contact with Jim and see when these tariffs are going to be coming off and when they anticipate we could see some movement of more apples heading into China, excuse me, heading into India. We've got some other news developing here from around the world. This was announced yesterday coming from the USDA as HPAI, high path avian influenza, continues to be a concern. Now, the trends are in the right direction. Outbreaks are decreasing. The industry is still holding their breath, but importantly, they're planning ahead for the future. The last HPAI outbreak in 2014-2015 was a substantial disruption to the poultry industry. The one we've been facing now for the last two years has also been substantial, even though the industry jumped a lot in terms of biosecurity following the, third, the 14 and 15 outbreak. 
However, there's still more to learn. And the USDA yesterday announced they're going to spend $502 million to develop a rapid response to any future bird flu cases. Uh, bird flu so far has killed 58.7 million chicken, turkeys, and other birds across 47 states since January of 2022. Just about 18 months we've seen so far with this outbreak uh, moving along. However, it's worth noting, and the USDA says hopefully there have been no new cases in commercial poultry flocks since April 19th, 2023, and there have been no outbreaks in backyard flocks since May 18th. So we're going on a month there without an outbreak in a backyard flock, hopefully an indication that things are turning in the right direction. We've got some other news for our listeners in the Eastern Corn Belt. The spotted lanternfly, which has been wreaking havoc and spreading rapidly, I should say, across uh, 14 states in the Eastern Corn Belt. Basically, it spreads uh, effectively. The concern is it could stretch all the way from Kansas to the East Coast. Spotted lanternfly currently predominantly in the Eastern Corn Belt. And the USDA has announced they are putting together a five-year strategy to combat the spread of the lanternfly. They are much less concerned about eradicating it in the places that it has established residency, but they are looking to develop new pest management tools and options, according to USDA Marketing and Regulatory Program Secretary Jenny Moffett, that will work to limit the spread of lanternfly as it moves across the country. Another piece of important export news was announced yesterday. We've been tracking on AOA the disagreements between the Mexican Mexican President AMLO and U.S. corn growers for the past two years. Of course, AMLO looking to restrict the amount of GM American corn imported into that country. And they are taking particular attention to white corn, which uh, the, the Mexican consumer uses in a lot of their cooking options. And the Mexican government yesterday said, you know what, we're still going to take white corn from the U.S., but we're going to put a 50% tariff on it. Now, this if it does go into place, uh, AMLO announced it yesterday, if it does go into place, it would likely violate the agreements of the U.S.-Mexican-Canada agreement, the USMCA NAFTA 2.0 that was signed under the prior administration. And there is going to be some more pushback. This is yet another salvo in the ongoing dispute between the U.S. and Mexico. Now, with this 50% tariff, it's expected, of course, that American corn will be imported much less into Mexico. Now, it's worth noting that uh, white corn production isn't huge, sales aren't huge. However, 20% of all U.S. white corn gets moved to Mexico, and its price just jumped by 50%, probably going to hurt sales. Folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll talk markets with Mike Zuzalo as this weather rally continues to unwind. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow right here for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. Why do you listen? I listen to radio to stay up on news, weather, current events around the local community. It keeps me up to date with everything going on in the world. It kind of just takes my mind off of the drive, getting some relevant information that's in time. It's always nice to know what's going on. Okay, what can I do? Well, I'll listen to the what's coming up and you yeah, can plan your day. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why you listen, and you have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund 
We fight. We, we win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, Foundation Fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.